Lord, I do thank you for your word. I do thank you that it speaks to us in every practical way that it can, that you've given it to us for every need that we have. And Lord, just thank you for the privilege of studying it freely. And uh, open our hearts this morning to what you have to say and not what I have to say. And that you would touch each individual here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to go through 1 Samuel 4 through 6, hopefully. And let me give you a little bit of an introduction. First of all, this book again, as I spoke last week, bridges the gap between the judges and the kings of Israel. Uh, Samuel is the judge prophet that helps transition the nation from its theocracy under the judges to a monarchy under the kings. And he's also the last prominent judge of Israel. You can also remember that because it is the time of the judges, everyone was doing what they felt what was right in their own eyes, not what they felt God wanted. First chapter, the theme was a deeper dedication. Hannah desperately wanted children. God had withheld them, not because he was trying to be punishing towards her, but because he was looking for something deeper from her. And he got it. And through that deeper dedication, she committed her son Samuel to God. And ultimately, because of that, he changed the nation. Now, chapter 2, it contrasts the difference between the wickedness and the faithfulness in the nation. And it also stands out as a... uh, Where is it? It stands out... showing what God is looking for, really, what he's looking for in a servant. Now, Hophni and Phinehas were prominent characters in that chapter. They were taking advantage of God's word. They were abusing the sacrifices, and they were basically bleeding the people out of their property and their money. And then you have Samuel, who is this young child whose mother comes to see him every year, brings him a new little tunic, And Samuel, even though he doesn't know the Lord personally yet, is faithful to serve in the tabernacle, someone who's willing. And so you see the contrast. Now, chapter 3 is when he hears God's voice for the first time. And really the theme of chapter 3 is, if you've heard God's voice, are you obeying it? Which is what Samuel was doing. And again, when you read each of these chapters, you want to see which words and phrases stand out. Um, And in that chapter, it was the word of the Lord, the Lord called, the Lord revealed, and so forth. And we're going to see something similar in these chapters. So we're going to begin with verse 1 of chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, not Scrooge, and the Philistines at Aphek. Now, this is the setting we're at. The Philistines, they were in the land during the time of Abraham, but they were, it was a small number of them compared to this point in history. They came from the island of Crete, and they basically set themselves up and organized themselves into five city-states. And in the book of First and Second Samuel, they are Israel's prominent en- enemy. 
They're mentioned over 150 times in these two books. Now, the place of Ebenezer doesn't actually get its name Ebenezer till about 20 years after this fact. The writer of Samuel, possibly Samuel or Nathan the prophet, uh, give this as a reference for the Israeli reader so they'd know the geographical area he's referring to. And the Philistines are camped at Aphek, which means strength or firmness, and this probably refers to their battle position against Israel, that they had a better position. Verses 2 through 5. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did God bring, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Now, it's important to realize that the elders of Israel actually recognized that it wasn't the Philistines that had defeated them. It was God himself. And there were, there were a couple ways they could have dealt with this. Now, if we remember back to when the Israel was first possessing the land... They had conquered Jericho. They had done it according to God's plan and God's way. But when they got to the second city, named Ai, they lost. And they were shocked. Now, their reaction wasn't, let's grab the ark, maybe that was the problem. The reaction was, of Joshua and the people, that they tore their clothes and they fell face down to the ground before the ark. And I'm going to read you Joshua 7. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark, remaining there until evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? So he's feeling a little bad and pitiful and thinking God's brought them down, not realizing the situation. And God says, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. So Israel's reaction this first time was not, what can we do to win the battle? It was, okay, what's wrong? We need to seek the Lord in this matter. Now, Israel's reaction in Samuel's time is, is not what sin do we have to confess? And again, they should have known this story. It was a few hundred years before. It was, that didn't work. Let's grab the ark, see if we can win this battle. They were looking at the, the physical plane and looking for the physical problem of their defeat. They weren't looking for the spiritual one. Now, James 4, verses 7 to 10, actually illustrates the principle that Joshua and the people had after the defeat of Ai. This is the same principle that they should have had when they lost to the Philistines. 
It says, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, this is the attitude they should have had. And it's not, when it says, when it says, lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, it's not talking about, let's live a depressing Christian existence. It's talking about if there's sin in your life, you shouldn't be happy about it. It shouldn't be, oh, it's just sin, I'll get over it, or they'll get over it. It should be, you should be broken before God. Shouldn't be anybody who's excited about their sin. And James is saying, this is the attitude we're supposed to have. And Joshua, they had the attitude, the proper attitude. And this is what Israel needed to do. They were actually blind to the fact that they were far from God. They had been so steeped in tradition and steeped in doing what was right in their own eyes that they couldn't confess to sin because they didn't see it. Or if they did see it, they were purposely blind to it. And so because of that, instead of repenting and prostrating themselves before God, they decided it was okay to treat God's ark as a good luck charm instead. So they treated it as a magical amulet or a lucky rabbit's foot or however you want to see it. Um, you know, I remember seeing rabbit's feet growing up. I think it was third or fourth grade, and I remember they were popular at the time, and they came in like, green and blue and purple and natural colors. But I didn't think of it till later that it was not very lucky for the rabbit to have that. But, you know, it's just part of our tradition. But again, instead of humbly repenting and seeking God, they turned to methods that God never approved. They only cared if it would work. They were only looking for that physical victory. They thought that they could carry God around in his box and make him work for them. And that's not how it works. Plus, if you can pick up your God and carry him around, he's not much of a God in the first place. And Israel really misunderstood who God was and the purpose of the ark. And it was not that the ark could never be taken into battle. And that wasn't the issue. There were many times in the history where it did happen. When they went out to Jericho, like we said, they marched around the city with it. Moses told the priest to lead the ark into battle against the Midianites in Numbers 31. And Saul himself brought the ark into battle, and so did David. The issue was not bringing the ark into battle. The issue was the circumstances and where their heart was. Now, I mentioned before that there are key words and key phrases in each chapters. Now, in chapters 1 through 3, 60 times God's name Yahweh is mentioned. And it's mentioned in such a way where God's, God is prominent. God is in control over all the situations, whether they're good or bad. God's in control of history. God was in control of Hannah not being able to conceive. God was in control even though Hophni and Phinehas were taking advantage of the people. Now, in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, or 3 through 6, the key word is also ark. And it's mentioned 35 times. And the ark itself was the representation of the throne of God among the people of Israel. It was kept in the most holy place in the tabernacle. It was kept behind curtains. No one was allowed to see it except the high priest once a year when he offered that blood sacrifice 
onto the mercy seat. Yet they wanted to take it out as a good luck charm and help them win a battle. Now, one of the key phrases in chapter 4 is the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. These phrases are significant because it shows why Israel lost. Israel had broken the covenant they made with the Lord at Sinai. Thus, they were defeated by the Philistines. And God's covenant at Sinai was a conditional covenant. Now, there are unconditional covenants in the Bible, and God makes them. But this one was conditional in that if you read it, it says, if you do this, then you will be blessed. If you don't do this, then you will be cursed. And it spells that out in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, where it says six times the word blessed with a description of how they will be blessed. And I believe it takes up something like 20 verses. And then the last part of the chapter, if you don't keep the commandments, it lists the word cursed six times and then a description of how for the rest of the chapter. Now, it was the Ark of the Covenant, and no one was upholding the covenant, so they lost. And Charles Spurgeon summed it up like this. He said, instead of attempting to get right with God, these Israelites set about devising superstitious means of securing victory over their foes. But they forgot the main matter, which is to enthrone God in the life and to seek to do his will by faith in Christ Jesus. And again, as I said, their outlook was physical. It was carnal. It wasn't spiritual. It was the physical victory they were looking for. And they lost. And there are battles that God's going to allow us to lose simply because he's trying to get us back on the right track. And there's going to be times where we as Christians, we're going to find ourselves beaten back. And there's three main opponents to us. It's Satan, the world, and the flesh. And sometimes we're going to feel like we've been beaten back like we're losing the battle, but a lot of times God's using those things to get us back from maybe we veered off. If you've seen, I haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, but I saw the movie because it was quicker. And there's this one part where Christian veers off the path because it looks easier, at least to start with, and then it gets rocky. Well, sometimes God allows us that difficulty, that trial to put us back on the right path. And I think it's evangelist the name of the character in the book or the movie, who keeps getting him back on the right path. But that's why God allows us these, not victories, but these losses in battle. There are also people, Christians and non-Christians, who do different traditions or superstitions to try to get themselves a good place in heaven. And we find them all over the place, and you don't really think about them until you hear about Well, I didn't think about them until I I read this chapter. There are people who will consider their works a good luck charm for getting saved. They might say, well, I I started going to church, and it's kind of like fire insurance, but not in the right way. They're hoping that they get into heaven because, well, they spent a day in church. Or they might say, I recycled. God, you owe me one because I helped your planet. Um, Or, you know, some... People in the church, even Christians, they'll say the Lord's Prayer as a rote prayer, as a tradition. It's a good luck charm. Well, I said the Lord's Prayer this morning. Or if you're a Catholic, well, I said the Rosary. Well, there's some things in the Rosary that they're not bad. They're not unbiblical necessarily, but 
if you're reciting it out of a rote memory and just because, it doesn't have any spiritual benefit for you. It's a good luck charm. A lot of people say it as a tradition or a good luck charm as they go through the beads. What we really need to do is just to ensure that we're on correct terms with God. It's with him enthroned on our life. And that if something happens, something negative happens, we don't go, okay, what did I do wrong? I got to don't look for the physical plane to correct. Look for the spiritual plane first. Make sure we're drawing close to God and not a mindless superstition. That way, when the battles do come, we do have the victory and not the defeat. Verses 6 through 8. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. This is four to five hundred years after the plagues. And God's hand was so strong against Egypt that his notoriety is still known four to five hundred years later in the ancient world. That's the impact that happened on Egypt. This great world power in ancient world was completely obliterated and everybody knew it. And God was given the glory for that. Even if they didn't call him the right name, they knew, oh, this is the God who did that. So they had some semblance of respect and honor, even if they didn't follow him. Verse 9. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And again, I think their attitude here is an interesting point to ponder. Because if they really believed their gods were greater than the God Israel was, they should not have been worried. If they believed the God of Israel to be greater than their gods, shouldn't they have just submitted to him in the first place? And there's times where we ourselves can act like Philistines and that, you know, we know what God, we knew what God was in some extent or they, they know his power like the Philistines did. But their issue wasn't knowledge about God, it was submission to God. And again, this is going to be another theme through these chapters is, okay, you, well, you know God, you know what he wants, but are you submitting to it? And their issue was, again, was not knowledge, it was submission. And we have similar behaviors. We probably know more about God than the Philistines did. They didn't have the word of God. They had stories that they had heard. They didn't have a scroll, most likely. They didn't have the law. Israel was unique in that it had that. And yet, they had a little bit more reverence, it looks like. But because we do know more, how much more blessing are we missing out on simply because we don't always let him have full control? You know, do we trust him that much? And another point to ponder in this is the Philistines saw a bleak situation and they thought, oh no, we're doomed. But they showed courage despite the desperate situation. They didn't want to be slaves of the Hebrews and that was really part of their motivation. 
Now as Christians, in reality, the battle has already been won for us on the cross. It certainly looks bleak as we walk in the world and are tempted by different sins. But instead of living a defeated Christian life, we should actually be encouraging one another. So we should be looking at each other and saying, you know what, be strong men and women of God. You don't want to be slaves of sin. You want to be slaves of God. So we need to be encouraging each other in that. We need to take courage from the same, in the same way the Philistines took courage. Even though they took courage in the wrong thing, we can take courage in the right thing. Verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. I always like to bring up when archaeology supports the Bible because people like to say it's not historically accurate or it's not true. And in the late 70s, there was a five-line inscription that was found on an ancient grain silo in a place called Isbet Sarta. I don't know what it was called in ancient times, but that's what they call it now. And when it was deciphered, it was found to contain a Philistine account of this actual battle. The capture of the ark, and it even specifically mentions the priest Hophni, Eli's son. And this is the actual, the earliest known extra-biblical reference to an Old Testament event. And I think that's cool. I like how archaeology continues to dig up things. And not that we need anything but the word of God to bolster our faith, but it's nice when you, you just go, huh, I told you. God, God's got it right. We don't, it, it does encourage us. Now, after this battle, the ark would never return to the city of Shiloh, where it was taken from. And according to Jeremiah and Psalms, the Philistines actually went on to destroy Shiloh after they had defeated the army. And as for Hophni and Phinehas, they died as they had lived in the very act of dishonoring God. Now, verse 12 that same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Now, this battle was fought near Aphek, like we said, and it was at least 20 miles from Aphek to Shiloh. So this messenger was running, and that was really, you know, no telephones, no fax machine. They had to run. And he had a long way to go, and his, bat, his, sorry, his journey was mostly uphill. Um, and according to an unfounded Jewish tradition because uh, there's no evidence for this, that runner was actually Saul. Um, but it's interesting how even Jews have their tradition that they add in. And they're fun to read, but there's not evidence for it. Now, verses 13 to 18. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, and he lists four things here. Israel fled before the Philistines. That's bad news. And the army has suffered great losses. That's worse news. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. That's 
worser. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. That's worsest, if that was a word. When he had mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Now, it wasn't the news of Israel's loss in battle, or the slaughter of the army, or even the news of his own sons, which killed him. It was the news of the Ark of the Covenant having been lost. And one commentator stated of Eli that first his heart was broken, and then his neck was broken. But it's commendable to Eli that, you know, he certainly didn't live the perfect life of faith. But he did love God. He did care. And he knew his sons were in sin. But he was concerned for God, even if he wasn't always able to live it. Verses 19 to 22. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Her grief was so great, and she has justification for it, that it overcame her maternal joy of her son being born. And she lost the desire to live because of it. But it's also important to remember that the glory of the Lord hadn't departed from Israel because the box of gold was gone. When Israel failed to repent and trust God, and they superstitiously trusted the ark instead, That's when the glory departed. One commentator said, The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark had been captured. The ark had been captured because the glory had already departed. Unfortunately, because we live in the end times, uh, the phrase, the glory departed, uh, can be said of many churches in the end times, uh, many ministries and even individuals in the day and age we live. And again, there's still pastors and churches, but is God necessarily enthroned in each church that stands and bears his name? Second Timothy said there's a form of godliness without power. And you could probably write the name Ichabod across many churches because the glory has departed. But we need to take this as a warning as well that you know, hopefully it's never our church. And unlike Israel, not stick to tradition or superstition. You know, we, Pastor Bill likes to break things up because he doesn't like to get stuck in that traditional rut. Last week, when we didn't do worship, he, he asked if I had worship. I said, I don't have any worship for this week. He's all, that's good. I don't want to do worship. I want to break it up. I don't want people to get stuck. Open and spend 20 minutes in prayer. You know, we want to bring the prayer meeting to the people. And sometimes when it's the first of the month, we're doing communion. You know, we're all used to doing it at the end, after the message. 
And there's been several times over the years I've been here, he's like, oh, we're doing it first. He's like, we're going to shake them up a bit just so they don't get stuck in their religious rut. He wants to make sure that everybody's growing, that everybody doesn't get caught in something. And that's good. And we also need to make sure not just at church, but every day we live our life, you know, okay, why am I doing this? We need to know the reason we're doing something. Tradition is blindly following some previous course of action without reason. But why are we doing what we do? Are we reading the Bible every day simply because I'm in the habit of doing it? Not that it's a bad habit. Are we doing it because we have the heart of Samuel in chapter 3? We open it and say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's, what, that's the attitude that we want to have. We don't want religious tradition, some religious rut that's hard to climb out of. We want to make sure that God's glory doesn't depart, that our life is glorifying him in the way that it should. And we need to take the warning in 1 Peter 5, 8 to make sure it doesn't, which is be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So, chapter 5. Verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. The Philistines believed that their god, Dagon, had delivered them and defeated Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was now their religious trophy to show their god was better, more powerful. Obviously, we know that wasn't the case. Now, the Philistine god Dagon was represented with a half-man, half-fish figure and was said to be the father of Baal. Now, obviously, the first thought that should come to your mind is that sounds just like a mermaid. And that's exactly where they come from. So you'll never look at the little mermaid again because you'll think, oh, that's Dagon. But that's where it comes from. Um, And a lot of... If you look at the names of a lot of companies or the names of some movies or fairy tales, a lot of them do come from old Babylonian traditions that, and it all started at Babel with Nimrod. That's where the seed of false religion came from. And it traveled up and it morphed and turned into different names, but the same false gods for different nations. You had Babel, uh, Babylon had Marduk and, uh, and Nebo, and then the Assyrians had their gods, and then the Philistines had their gods, but they're all interrelated. They're all from the same origin. Um, the company Panasonic comes from the god Pan. Nike comes from the Greek god Hermes. If you look at all these things, you can see the impact old false religion has on naming things. Anyway... The reason why the Philistines did have a god that was from the sea is because, as I mentioned before, they were from Crete, and they were related, related to the Phoenicians who were a seafaring people. And they, as I said, did eventually settle on the coast into five city-states. And, you know, the Philistines, they defeated Israel. They didn't defeat Israel's god. God allowed Israel to be defeated so he could chasten them. Uh, and God was not defeated by Dagon. Verse 3 says, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. So I don't know what they were thinking, but it was probably like, oh, that's weird. So they picked it back up, set it in its place. And again, you can look at this and go, 
okay, well, if I have to pick my God up and set him back up into place, he's probably not worth worshiping in the first place. But they did. Verse 4, But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. So they walk in the morning to a worship service. Dagon, worshiping God, falling on his face before the ark. Only the fish part remained. The whole torso and arms or hands had broken off. Now, the head and the hands, or the torso and the hands were broken off because the head is the seat of wisdom, and the hands were instruments of action. Both were cut off to show that Dagon had neither wisdom nor strength to defend himself or his worshipers from the true God. Verse 5. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So, because of this event, they would no longer walk on the threshold or the doorway into the temple. And I forget which book makes a reference to it right now. I think it might be Zechariah. But they talk about how from that day forward, basically they jumped over the threshold. They wouldn't walk on it. So the significant thing here is instead of recognizing the supernatural, which they did, but instead of recognizing that Dagon was not the God to be worshipped, they created another religious tradition instead to top on top of what they're already doing. So because of the hands in his head broke off the threshold, they basically said, oh, the threshold is holy now. Can't touch it. Can't step on it. Got to jump over it. So these Philistines, these Philistine priests are just like men who are confronted with the truth today. They reject God despite the evidence, not because of the evidence. They wanted to believe it was an accident. We talked about apologetics a couple of Wednesdays ago. There's so much reasonable evidence out there that God exists, that God's there, that the Bible is his word. It's not for lack of evidence or information. It's for lack of desire. It's what Romans says. They, oh, I can't even quote it now. Romans chapter one basically says, oh, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They ignore the information that's out there and say, oh, no, we have all this other evidence of evolution that is no evidence at all, but simply high ideals of what they'd like it to be. But, again, they refuse to believe because worshiping God, worshiping the Lord, would mean a huge change in their thinking and their living. And a lot of people don't want to do that. It's always easier to pick up false ideas and beliefs than it is to set it up in its place again and then dress it up and make it more palatable. Verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. The Hebrew word here is emirads. There are many opinions on what this affliction could have actually have been. <clears throat> but the ancient Hebrew and the rabbis seem to indicate. And in Deuteronomy 28, 27, it mentions a disease of the hinder parts. It looks like God gave them hemorrhoids. Um, 
That's really what it says. Um, although the Hebrew is actually more graphic than I said it. Um, suffice it to say, their judgment was divine, holy hemorrhoids. And they probably needed Costco size preparation H. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's another theory that says it was the bubonic plague. And because of a mention in rats in chapter 6, it could support this theory. But whatever it was, and personally in this case, I believe it actually was a severe case of that hemorrhoids. Whatever it was, they were miserable. Very, very miserable. Verse 7 and 8. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us. Because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel removed to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. Now, God first tries to get their attention by knocking over Dagon twice. Next, he gives them some sort of a disease. So three times he tries to get their attention, but they don't listen. And it's not to be vindictive or petty, because God's not like that. But he wants them to repent. And it even says in Ezekiel, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we can look at this and go, well, God was petty. God was cruel. And there are people who will use that argument. They will say, well, God mercilessly destroyed everybody in the promised land. But they also forget that he gave them 400 years to repent in the first place. You can read it from that perspective, but the real perspective is the Old Testament is so full of God's mercy that judgment is always the last thing he tries to give them. But it's our stubborn human nature uh, that gets us the judgment. Instead of submitting to the God of Israel, they decided to try to get rid of him. And the problem is we can't get rid of God. We can do things to push him away, but even the best of those are temporary. We all have to face God and stand before him one day. It's certainly better to do it now. Now, they did move the Ark of God to the city of Gath. More than likely, if it wasn't... Goliath himself, at least his parents, were afflicted with whatever was happening here. So you can make that connection. Verses 9 through 12. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. If the Philistines would have repented and turned toward the Lord they could have benefited from the ark. Instead, it had become a curse to them and a judgment. And 
there is a New Testament principle for this as well. Uh, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. It says, The same is true of the presence of God among us. I'm sorry. It says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to another the aroma of life leading to life. So the work of Jesus on our behalf will either be the greatest blessing we have ever known in all eternity, or it will be the greatest witness of God's judgment against us. And the ark could have been a blessing to the Philistines if they had repented, but instead it turned into the greatest curse simply because they did not want to submit and surrender to God. And if he refuses voice in his heart towards you, it's always going to be a curse. And they just didn't want to listen, unfortunately. Chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, so evidently they're willing to put up with the punishment for seven months, The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering or a trespass offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. So even the Philistines realize they have to offer something to God. Uh, They know they're guilty before him. So they've got to offer something. Now, they don't know the law. So they're going off their own human understanding and wisdom what they need to do. Verses 4 and 5, the Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. I don't know what five gold tumors would look like if that was hemorrhoids. But... Evidently, they sent five golden hemorrhoids as an offering to God. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Again, the Jews understood that only blood makes atonement. These pagans didn't know that. But of course, you know, they're doing what they understand. We know the plague involved tumors. Um, We hadn't been told in 1 Samuel 5 that it involved rats. Some people think the tumors, as I said, were the result of bubonic plague carried by rats. Others think the rats were a part of another plague or calamity that eventually was mentioned also in 511. Because it says, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. And the hand of God was heavy there. I tend to believe it was probably both, although the hemorrhoids were probably greater. But... I think the plague was probably there. That's my opinion. That's not God's word. Verse 6. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? And again, this is a small testimony to the Philistines and their knowledge of Israeli history. They didn't know much, but they did know what some of the works of God were. Maybe they were all judgments. But they understood, you know, if Pharaoh wouldn't have hardened his heart, if the Egyptians wouldn't have hardened their heart, it wouldn't have gone so badly for them. So they, they learned from history. Of course, they didn't learn enough to turn from God. 
or I'm sorry, turn to God. They learn to know when enough was enough and to not let their hand, their land get completely destroyed like Pharaoh did, but not enough to turn toward him. And, you know, even as Christians, we have a tendency to let our heart get hardened if we don't let it continually get softened by his word. The water of the word has to run willingly over our heart to keep it soft and pliable and moldable in his hands. If it doesn't, it becomes hard and we become impervious to the voice of God sometimes. Uh, It says in Hosea to break up the fallow ground, to sow for ourselves righteousness, to reap in mercy until the Lord comes again. The Philistines could have prevented and cured their hardness of heart by acknowledging their sin, God's righteousness, and then doing something about it. We just need to make sure that we are along those same lines doing that, not letting our heart get hardened. And their acknowledgement of the judgment was from God was one of their ways of giving glory to God. They didn't know every way they could do it, but they did it in one way. Of course, again, they refused to turn to him even though they acknowledged his sovereignty, his power over them. And this, again, is a testimony to our own stubbornness as humans. Verse 7. Now then get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. So they're saying, okay, we know the calamity is from God. But just to be sure that it just didn't happen by chance. Let's get two cows who have never worked a day in their life hitch a yoke to them, and see which direction they go. Now, the tendency would have been for the cows to follow their maternal instinct and look for their calves or veer off the road and eat whatever's on the side of the road, but not to walk together. They would have not been unified. So in a sense, the Philistines are trying to test God and force him into proving that it's really him. And God acquiesces in this sense, in this case. Verse 8 through 12. I got to read verse eight. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it, send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right hand or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So these cows are lowing as they went. And what the Hebrew indicates is that means they're not especially happy. Even though they want to be with their calves at home, the cows actually do the will of God. And the Hebrew word here does mean an intense aversion, which is often expressed in punitive or adverse action. So their lowing is, I don't like this, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. This hurts my neck. They're complaining the whole way, but they're doing the will of God because they're submitting to God. Not that that justifies complaining, just saying. 
So the Israelites and the Philistines are both resisting God. So the Lord found a few cows to show his glory through. Now, when man is too stubborn to do the will of God and give God the glory, he uses his creation instead, his animal creation. Balaam's donkey obeyed God. God even allowed him to speak. The fish who swallowed Jonah obeyed God, knowing that it was created for that specific purpose. In fact, it says in Jonah that fish was created for God's specific purpose of swallowing Jonah. And the fish did it. The two dairy cows obeyed God. And obeying God is not always easy. It says they didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. But despite their displeasure, they kept going in a straight line to where God had directed them. So is obeying God always easy? No. Will it be difficult and laborious sometimes? Yeah. But we're still expected to be obedient and give him glory. This is essentially why we're created. He didn't need us. He created us for his glory. And just as God was able to overpower the instinctive nature of the cows, he can overpower ours as well, because if we walk in the spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Who we are in Jesus has more power than who we are in Adam. Verses 13 to 19. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. Uh, This was probably May or June because of the harvest. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. I don't know why they looked in the ark. Uh, especially since they knew better. Uh, They knew what was in there. Uh, There's no evidence the Philistines looked in the ark. In one sense, they showed more reverence toward the ark than the Israelites did here. Uh, When these men removed the lid, this this is actually a good picture. When they removed the lid, the mercy seat for the ark of the covenant, they removed the blood of the lamb that was poured on the mercy seat between the cherubim once every year. When they removed the lid, they were face to face with the law of God that no man can keep. They removed the blood of the lamb that was between them and the law. Without Jesus Christ between us and the law, we are destined for judgment. If we don't accept him, believe in him, place faith in him, all we're going to get is judgment. That's what happens when it's removed. And that's what these people did. And 70 of them paid the price for it. God does deal more strictly with the Israelites than with the Philistines. 
they transported the ark incorrectly according to the law, but they didn't know any better. Israel knows better, and we are held accountable for what we know. Verse 20 to 21. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? They sent messengers to the people of Kirjath-Jerman, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. Now, in one sense, the men of Beth Shemesh show a bad heart in how they ask the question. Their question makes God seem too harsh instead of showing themselves to be too disobedient. In another sense, they ask a good question because, really, who can stand before God? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Uh, The name Michael means who is like God. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. And they said, whom shall it go up from us? And it appears, even though this was a town of Levites, according to the Bible, this is one of their towns they lived in. That's where they're allowed to offer a sacrifice. The holiness of God was a problem, a problem that they wanted to fix, not by repenting and confessing, but by putting distance between themselves and God. Their question was not, how can we be made right with God? Their question was, who can we give this problem so it doesn't affect us any longer? So instead of getting right with God for their sin, even God's people, the Israelites, looked to pass God on to someone else. Now, we don't know why, we picked, why they picked Kirjath-Jerman. Either they were trying to curse them or they were on good relations with them and they thought they can deal with it either way. We don't want it. But when we look at these chapters, really there's nobody here we want to be like. No attitude. The Philistines don't have the right attitude. You know, there was little snippets here and there of things that were honorable, and Israel didn't have the right attitude. It was either a good luck charm or it was a totem or or whatever it was. Uh, We see in these chapters the stubbornness and ignorance of people of no faith and people of faith. Instead of turning towards God, and learning and submitting to him, they let traditions get in the way of their relationship. And when we have sin, we need to confront and confess it, submitting to him and drawing to him. The holiness of God, we need to make sure it's never a burden we're trying to avoid, but a desire that we're trying to pursue uh, by daily learning from him and his word. We also need to realize that no matter the situation, God's always going to be glorified. If he's not going to be glorified in us, which we want, he's going to find something to glorify himself through. There's, and in the end, when the book is over, God's glorified anyways. It's better just to do it now. And uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, I do pray that you would glorify yourself in our lives. And Lord, as the song we sang earlier said, that we would exalt you above everything else in our life, that you would be center, that you would be the focus. And Lord, that you would be on the throne of our life. If there's a sin in our life that's holding us back, if there's something we haven't confessed, Lord, may we confess it to you and lay it before you 
not be separated from you, not be stubborn, but give it all to you. Because, Lord, you can do so much more with it than we can anyway. So, Lord, bless this morning and bless your people here. And may we be a blessing to others outside. In Jesus' name, amen.